Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. Cannibalism in the Cars by Mark Twain. I believe this was first published in the Broadway Annual, uh, November 1868. I'm not sure why it came out in November if it's an annual, um, but it seemed to say that. So I had a bit of trouble tracking down the original source. This is it. As far as I can tell, this is the first publication. Um, it is a very, very funny story, and it and spoilers in the title <laughs> um but uh i think what's so funny is that um uh i didn't know what the cars were but that doesn't matter um i know what cannibalism and that is pretty interesting um but you can't really s- spoil this story because it's so funny you really do have to read it it is too long for us to read it it takes about 18 minutes, I think, to to read it uh, aloud to yourself. It'd probably take about 15 minutes to read um, on the page. But uh, I do have many excerpts I want to pull from it um, <laughs> and talk about. But I, I have a question first, and I hope you can help me with this, Eric. Is this uh, satire <laughs> or a parody? Because it's both, I think. I, I can't tell. He's certainly making fun of something. Oh, absolutely. Um, are you looking for a distinction between satire and parody? I guess, uh, well, I was thinking that this is a parody, but I think it's also satire, and not, they're not identical. But That is correct. Um, but they're similar. The word parody, so, so in order to let people know why we're talking about this at this juncture, um, can I give a, a, a brief sense of the structure of this thing? Please do so. So cannibalism in the cars begins with what we discover is a front frame. That is, a narrator begins, I visited St. Louis lately and blah, 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 blah. So on this trip, he says he met someone and then he gives us what he calls with a title, The Stranger's Narrative. Mm-hmm. So we have something presumably set at the time of publication, and then we have something set in 1853, which is 15 years earlier than the time of publication. And then we have this story. And in the story, we get cannibalism in the cars. Right? A, a railroad train gets snowbound, trying to get across the Great Plains, and after days, the uh, inhabitants turn to a stratagem for survival, in the course of which they, uh, in a very gentlemanly way, yes. uh, seem to follow the rules of Congress. Um, and since the front frame talks about Congress a bit, and uh, the fact that our narrator, our outer narrator, has recently been in Washington, D.C., um, clearly the nature of Congress is what's at stake here. Um, and then we have an outer frame at the end, which I would say nothing about, because I'm really interested in finding out which pieces of this you want to uh, highlight and mm-hmm. look forward to listening. So within this, though, uh, and following the rules of Congress in order to decide um, whom one will sacrifice to eat, um, yeah. 
has a, a, the ring to it of um, Swift's modest proposal. Mm-hmm. Solve the Irish problem by just letting them export their babies. They make wonderful uh, fricassee for the English moneyed classes. So an American friend has told me. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's a satire. Um, now that doesn't mean that it's not a parody. Uh, parody comes from uh, Greek. The word parody comes from Greek, and it means um, the the par means equal. As in um, parity, you know, mm-hmm. this has parity or compare to put two things together or parallel, right? They are equal to each other in their orientation. And ode is, uh, is a work of art, a, a poem, if you like. So a parody is a work of art alongside the other work of art. And one could have what I call in a, in a book I've just finished writing, um, um, a sober parody so that you can take a work of art and then have another work of art that clearly calls that first one to mind, but it does it in a way that says, you know, I, I want you to, to to think about what this would mean in this way. For example, um, there's a marvelous book by, uh, 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 oh, I've forgotten her name for an instant, I'm sorry, um, uh, called Circe. It's a modern telling of the story of Circe. Mm -hmm. And in a way, it is a parody in that sober sense of the ancient texts that deal with Circe. Um, But it is in no way a satire of the story of Circe. It has important political content. But to understand it, one is expected to be understanding this other stuff alongside it. It's not an allegory. It doesn't just follow because the ancient sources are inconsistent um, with each other. But it's, in a sense, a parody. However, one of the great reasons to have a work of art alongside the other work of art is to highlight aspects of that work of art, the same way that somebody in dramatic irony might be signaling one thing behind his back while he's saying something else to a character. We can see he's crossing his fingers and he's really lying. Mm-hmm. The character to whom he's speaking doesn't know that. Um, so... You can have a parody that satirizes what's going on. What Swift did in A Modest Proposal was take the idea of uh, quite uh, earnest uh, public policy white papers, we would call them white papers these days, and create a work alongside that kind of work that shows what happens if you're concerned only with the policy rather than the effects, the moral effects of those policies on people. And so that parody was also a satire. <laughs> in my view, um, what we have here, not in the front frame and the, the outer and the back frame, um, but in the central story of the stranger's narrative, where we get a parody of the operations of Congress, that parody is in fact a satire. Mm. And since the reference to Washington, D.C. and politics, already is prominent in the very first paragraph of the outer frame, of the front frame, um, it seems to me that the intention of the story is to be not merely parodic, but specifically satiric. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, I, I was thinking how well Mark Twain's just a great writer, and I, he, he primes us for it. He primes us for it, and when when it's paid... <laughs> 
when it's paid off and he he actually delays it and delays it and delays it and then when he gets into it it comes so wonderfully that I just I started giggling all the way through <laughs> my reading um, and then it, it has a, a beautiful puncture uh, at the end which um, or punctuation I guess rather than puncture but uh, there's a, a beautiful punctuation at the end about uh, you know this guy being a, being a monomaniac, the guy who's telling the story, the stranger. Um, but we do need to read some of it to give people a flavor for it. Um, I was thinking on page 190, um, on the second column, where it starts uh, on the fourth day. Give them a flavor for it? Oh, Jesse, please. It's so yummy. Oh. It's a delicious story, Eric. You know, the vegetarian in me has a lot of trouble going along with this, but I'll suspend my disgust, as the poet said I should. All right. Uh, uh, I'll just read for a while and see what happens. Here we go. The fourth day came and went, and the fifth. Five days of dreadful imprisonment. A savage hunger looked out at every eye. There was in it a sign of awful import, the foreshadowing of something that was vaguely shaping itself in every heart a something which no tongue dared yet to frame into words. The sixth day passed. The seventh dawned upon as gaunt and haggard and hopeless a company of men as ever stood in the shadow of death. It must out now. That thing which has been growing up in every heart was ready to leap from every lip at last. Nature had been taxed to the utmost. She must yield." Richard H. Gaston of Minnesota, tall, cadaverous, and pale, rose up. All knew what was coming. All prepared. Every emotion, every semblance of excitement was smothered. Only a calm, thoughtful seriousness appeared in the eyes that were lately so wild. Gentlemen, it cannot be delayed longer. The time is at hand. We must determine which of us shall die to furnish food for the rest. Mr. John J. Williams of Illinois rose and said, Gentlemen, I nominate the Reverend James Sawyer of Tennessee. This is the point where I thought, I thought in this story that the next guy was just, Are you crazy? <laughs> what are you talking about? And that never happened. Um, but that's, I think, the reaction uh, Twain wants us to have. Right? <laughs> but it continues. I nominate... <laughs> Uh, sorry, Mr. William R. Adams of Indiana said, I nominate Mr. Daniel Sloat of New York. Mr. Charles J. Langdon, I nominate Mr. Samuel A. Bowen of St. Louis. Mr. Sloat, gentlemen, I desire to decline in favor of Mr. John A. Nanstrad, uh, Jr. of New Jersey. Mr. Gaston, if there be no objection, the gentleman's desire will be acceded to. So at this point in the story, I um, I'm like, what are the f- expressions going on on the men who are being nominated's faces? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the way Twain's writing it is the way that the character is relating this story. <laughs> so what is going on on the listener's face? If that's the the Twain character who who starts the opening, uh, opening frame. What is going on? I I can't really even continue. I'm laughing through this. Maybe you can keep reading for me. 
well, I could keep reading for you if you wanted. I, I do have some observations. Sure, here. go for uh, it. Well, I, clearly, uh, clearly, Twain is making enormous fun, poking fun at our legislative process. Right, um, that I mean, it's the honorable. You know, the chair recognizes the honorable member from New Jersey. The chair, mm-hmm. you know, which we've got all of the formalities here. And later on, uh, as you know, it says, "Well, you know, the rules call for us to do it this way, and the rules call for us this way." I moved the previous question. The motion was carried. I mean, it, it's wait a minute. Is we know there are in fact twenty four people involved, mm-hmm. and they are all men. Right, so we have a ship of fools situation in which we have a microcosm of the world, but the microcosm of a man's world. Twenty-four men is just like the number of hours in a day, and time is being clicked over in this story repeatedly. The question is, can we get across the Great Plains? They are the 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 nearest salvation for them is in the quote the Jubilee settlements. And I would like to suggest that while all of this is going on explicitly, right, <laughs> while these guys are there, there is another level to this story, which is what makes Twain, one of the things that makes Twain so rich a writer. Right? The Jubilee settlements really existed. They were settlements uh, as part of the, uh, the widespread American utopianism idea that was very important, particularly in the 19th century. Uh, these were settlements... Of, of people who decided that they would be able to have the ideal uh, community on earth if they lived according to the laws of Leviticus. And so they they made little communities in the Great Plains. And these were the days when Illinois, which is where the train is stuck, was vast and unpopulated, most of it. Not Chicago, not Nauvoo, but much of it in between. And it's important to recognize that Jubilee as a name for these settlements is crucial because the settlements themselves are based on Leviticus. In Leviticus, we learn the rules for what it means to be a righteous person. And one of the rules is that at the end of every 50-year cycle, all debts are forgiven and all slaves are freed. And that's the Jubilee year, right? When suddenly everything becomes easy again. In fact, in Romance languages, jubilation is the word that we in America use uh, called retirement, right? It's you, you jubilate. You go into a world where you are released from the problems of the world, right? Jubilation, it comes from the uh, Hebrew word having to do with blowing the ram's horn to mark that year. So that's where they would find sucker. Who's the first person that gets nominated to be eaten? It's a reverend. Right, the Reverend James Sawyer. Right, so you know, and there, there are biblical references. I think throughout, we we come to find out. For example, I mean, think about it. They get stuck in the snow. It looks white and pristine. It looks innocent, but in fact, at the heart of this this now immobilized uh, iron horse are twenty four men of modern America. They've brought the opposite of innocence right in there with them. The first day they don't eat, the second day they don't eat. When is it that the right honorable member from Minnesota proposes what everyone has been thinking? The seventh day. Mm -hmm. These guys have taken upon themselves the role of God to decide who will live and who will die. 
And I think that not only is Twain trying to show us how stupid these legislators are not to consider the consequences of what they're doing and the morals of what they're doing, but he is also trying to show us that what they are doing is fundamentally the opposite of what they assert themselves to be doing. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) And and that's going on underneath. And I love it. And I, I wanted to say that now, Jesse, because I think we do not anticipate that that back frame. Uh, well, at least I didn't. I, so I think you're absolutely right. It's a very, very, very rich story, and and it's not just funny. It's 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 thoughtful uh, because inside inside of these uh, these this this narrative is. Well, is this actually how it happened, right? He's putting a happy face on it. Um, he's putting a very dignified face on it. But um, for every every person and every person's uh, objection, and um, there, there ne- there's no uh, scene where they actually start, you know, they kill the man and they start sawing him apart and then cooking him up. But there is the no, dialogue. They never show us. No, they never show it, but they... they we can we can imagine what's happening, and and it almost takes on like a a play like um, atmosphere with you know the names and then a colon and then his his words. It, it's not in quotation marks, but uh, it, it it's like that. I want to read. This is on page one ninety two. This is just so funny. I'm thinking about what's going on <laughs> on the train as these words are being uh, given to us. The chair. The gentleman from Missouri will take his seat. The chair cannot allow the integrity of the committee to be questioned, save by the regular course, under the rules. What action will the House take upon the gentleman's motion? Mr. Halliday of Virginia. I move to further amend the report by substituting Mr. Harvey Davis of Oregon for Mr. Mr. Messick. It may be urged by gentlemen that the hardships and privations of a frontier life have rendered Mr. Davis tough. But gentlemen, is this a time to cavil at toughness? Is this a time to be fastidious concerning trifles? Is this a time to dispute about matters of paltry significance? No, gentlemen. Bulk is what we desire. Substance, weight, bulk. These are the supreme requisites now. Not talent, not genius, not education. I insist upon my motion. Mr. Morgan, excitedly. Mr. Chairman, I do most strenuously object to this amendment. The gentleman from Oregon is old, and furthermore is bulky, only only in bone, not in flesh. I ask the, the gentleman from Virginia if it is soup we want instead of solid sustenance. If we would do, if he would delude us with shadows, if he would mock our suffering with a Oregonian specter, I ask him if he can look upon the anxious faces around him. If he can gaze into our sad eyes, if he can listen to the beating of our expectant hearts and still thrust this famine-stricken fraud upon us, I ask him if he can think of our desolate state, our past sorrows of our dark future and still unpitying foist upon us, this wreck, this ruin, this tottering swindle, this gnarled and blighted and sapless vagabond from Oregonians' inhospitable shores, never applause. <laughs> deciding lunch, right? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, they're deciding dinner. Yes, yes, they've already they've already had their meal for breakfast. And they're deciding dinner. 
Well, no, no, they. I don't think they've had it yet at this point. Maybe I'm mistaken, but um, further down on that second column on 192, um, right, Mr. Radway uh, moved the House now to take up the remaining candidates and go into an election for breakfast. Right. This is so. Before they've eaten anything, they're already lining up their their larder from among themselves. And the first ballot was a tie, half the members, blah blah blah, and so on. And that paragraph ends with, but in the midst of it, a motion to adjourn was carried and the meeting broke up at once. Then, the very next line, the preparations for supper diverted the attention of the Ferguson faction from the discussion of their grievance for a long time. And then, when they would have taken it up again, the happy announcement that Mr. Harris was ready drove all thoughts of it to the winds. We improvised tables by propping up the backs of car seats and sat down with hearts full of gratitude to the finest supper that had blessed our vision for seven torturing days. Blessed and seven again are Bible references. Mm -hmm. How changed we were from what we had been a few short hours before. Hopeless, sad-eyed, misery, hunger, uh, feverish anxiety, desperation, then thankfulness, serenity, joy, too deep for utterance now. Holy Toledo! He gives us such detail about how they had dinner and not a word about actually killing, butchering, and and cooking somebody. <laughs> and, and not a word, not a zippo, not a single word. And he gives us clear indication by what is not said that they felt no remorse, that all they felt was satisfaction, that this was a blessing. <laughs> and it seems to me that that is the, the key to what's going on here, that congressmen, this is saying, um, and to the extent they represent people in general, it's people in general, congressmen feel great satisfaction in their work if they screw up the lives of lots of people, <laughs> so long as they feel that they have managed to satisfy their own vision for what should make their lives comfortable. <laughs> On page uh, 193, this is, it, 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 it's, it's, you're exactly right. It's just so funny that, that they are not talking about the, you know, the horrors that are witnessed. It's all very dignified. And then it, when somebody is, is being commended, uh, for, you know, good, their good works, uh, or they're being criticized, the criticism and the commendations are not what we, we would normally expect. This is, uh, in the bottom left hand column of 193. Do not interrupt me, please. After breakfast, we... <laughs> so so that's right. the narrator, uh, or the uh, stranger, uh, saying to our twain uh, framer that <laughs> I'm in the middle of this story. Let me tell it. Do not interrupt right. me, please. After breakfast, we elected a man by the name of Walker from Detroit for supper. He was very good. I wrote his wife so afterwards. <laughs> he was worthy of all praise. I shall remember Walker. He was a little rare, but very good. And then the next morning, we had Morgan of Alabama for breakfast. He was one of the finest men I ever sat down to. Handsome, educated, refined, spoke several languages fluently. A perfect, a perfect gentleman. He was a perfect gentleman, and singularly juicy. <laughs> for supper, we had the Oregon Patriarch. And he was a fraud. There is no question about it. Old, scraggy, tough. Nobody can picture the reality. <laughs> I finally said, gentlemen, you can do as you like, but I will wait for another election. <laughs> and Grimes of Illinois said, gentlemen, I will also wait. 
and you elect a man that has something to recommend, that is something to recommend him. I shall be glad to join you again. In, it soon became evident there was a general dissatisfaction with Davis of Oregon. And so to preserve the goodwill that was preva- prevailed so pleasantly since he had Harris, since we had had Harris, an election was called, and the result of it was that Baker of Georgia was chosen. He was splendid. Well, well, after that we had Doolittle and Hawkins and McElroy. There was some complaint about McElroy because he was uncommonly short and thin. And Penrod and two Smiths and Bailey. (laughs) Bailey had a wooden leg, which was a clear clear loss, but he was otherwise good. And an Indian boy and an Oregon grinder and a gentleman by the name of Buckminster, a poor stick of a vagabond that wasn't any good for company and no account for breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we were glad we got him elected before relief came. <laughs> you know, I, I've never done this, uh, Jesse. Perhaps you have. Have you counted up the I have not. I have not. Uh, I, have, I have a feeling that Twain is letting us know, because it feels like there's more than It does feel people. like that, right? Right. And, and I love that, that he then gives us, or the inner narrator gives us a sense and is carrying it forward for us for Twain. This isn't just Congress, because look at how the world reacts. Right. Right. Um, yes, we we elected Murphy, but John Murphy came home with us in the train that came to succor us. And as they but they elected him, but they got help before they had to carry it out, and and lived to marry the widow Harris. Right. Who was the relict of the first choice? He married her and is happy and respected and prosperous yet. Ah, it was like a novel, sir. It was like a romance. Holy Toledo. Now, once you start realizing this is a story, one of the things that I hope comes to mind is, wait a minute, let us say, just to keep the numbers even and easy to do, let us say that um, the average person weighs 120 pounds. It's clearly going to be more than that. But let's say the average person weighs... uh, 120 pounds, and you kill them and butcher them, and there are 24 people, now 23, um, to eat uh, this 120-pound person. Let's say that half of his weight is unusable. So we're talking about um, not five pounds per person, (laughs) but two and a half pounds per person. You know, if you have two and a half pounds of food for dinner... yeah. Are you going to need two and a half pounds for breakfast and then lunch and then dinner? Then I mean, these people are not eating out of necessity. These people are eating because it's fun. I, I don't imagine they're that gourmands. They eat this much exactly, right? And yet the widow Harris is just glad to be with John Murphy. Oh, what a world these people have created for themselves, and that I think brings us. To the outer frame, what kind of world had they created for themselves and for us? I, go back to that? Yeah, I do. But uh, the, I, I want to, as we're as he's finishing his story, he turns. He says, um, "I just read this. This is a couple more paragraphs wow. down. One ninety-three. Uh, he married her and is happy and respected and prosperous. Yet, ah, it was like a novel, sir. <laughs> it was like a romance." Ah, this is my stopping place, sir. I must bid you goodbye. Any time that you care can make it convenient to tarry a day or two with me, I shall be glad to have you. I like I like you, sir. I have a, conceived a, 
an affection for you. I could like you as well as I liked Harris himself. <laughs> sir. Good day, sir. And a pleasant journey. <laughs> it's a narrow escape here. Luckily, yeah. it didn't start snowing, right? Uh, or, like, uh, there was a, sl- slow, a small delay for some reason at a stoplight. Um, and then uh, he, uh, the outer narrator uh, finds somebody who can tell him, the conductor... Uh, who this man was. He says, I saw a conductor looking at me. I said, who is that man? He was a member of Congress. <laughs> is this where you want to take over? No, no. I Well, yes. I mean, I thought you wanted to talk about the ending. So he says he was a good one once. But in fact, he is now a monomaniac. And when he gets on that old subject, he never stops till he has eat up the whole carload of people he talks about. He would have finished the crowd by this time, only he had to get out here. He has got their names as pat as ABC when he gets on them all eat up. But himself, he always says, then the hour for the usual election for breakfast has arrived, having arrived and there being no opposition, I was duly elected, after which there being no objection offered, I resigned. Thus, I am here. <laughs> so, um, And that's the end of the story. In other words, the conductor is saying, that this guy is crazy. Right. He had been a congressman, but he's crazy. But then there's this one more paragraph. I felt inexpressibly relieved. This is the outer frame. Uh, This ends the outer frame. I felt inexpressibly relieved to know that I had been only, I had only been listening to the harmless vagaries of a madman instead of the genuine experiences of a bloodthirsty cannibal. (laughs) And it seems to me that what Twain is doing is asking us to imagine two other possibilities. One, that it's not the harmless vagaries of a madman, it's the madness into which one sinks after one has been a member of Congress. Right. Right? So that that's first of all. And the second is, this is in fact not madness, this is something that actually happened. Mm-hmm. It's so horrible that nobody is willing to admit that it ever happened at all. <laughs> and, you know, it's sort of like the Donner Pass. There is, after all, a, a, a precedent for this, um, and one that, that Twain knew about. So this is a, ultimately it is a hilarious story. I love <laughs> listening to you laugh about it, Jesse. Uh, and it's also a quite serious critique of what it means to settle behind formality. <laughs> and if you like, Absolutely. I would also say the railroad. It's not abs- it's not accidental. You know, there are references here that remind us of ships. All hands decided to do this, for example. Yeah. Um, we're out in the vastness of the Sea of the Prairie. Uh, it looks like a ship. It's a law unto itself. The fact of the matter is that trains and industrialism give us a sense of control over the world that makes us function mechanically. And the rules of Congress make people function according to the rules. No, this is out of order, and so on. This isn't a critique only of Congress. It is a critique of trying to live in a society that takes the natural and imposes upon it a set of strictures, and structures that confine us and force us in certain patterns. And those patterns, if they go unexamined 
and are not at least punctured from time to time with humor will lead us to eating up our fellow men. (laughs) And that's why I think, although this is a common topic for Twain, he finds there's always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.